This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from Tift Merritt. But first, the story. It's such a pleasure to welcome back to Songwriter, Jonathan Lethem, who reads from his new novel, The Arrest. Jonathan is a best-selling novelist, a MacArthur genius, and a professor at Pomona College in California. I asked him about the history of his long-standing cross-arts collaborations, especially in music. I grew up wanting to make paintings because my father was a painter, and then I realized how much I was interested in arts that moved through time, and I got interested, therefore, in like visual things that were narrative things too, like movies and comic books. But of course, in the background, I was always listening to music. All of these things always seemed to me sort of like alchemically connected and, and, and they all lived in my imagination in a, in a similar way. Um, I've also had the luck of hanging out with a lot of really great musicians. You guys are, are, are part of a, a tradition for me of like wanting to be in the band even though I'm not qualified to be in the band. So my way of doing that is to offer people lyrics and I would just seek every opportunity to collaborate and, um, and try to inspire musicians with, you know, to, to incorporate my language into their stuff. It's, uh, it's part of the alchemy. So the arrest is a kind of allegorical, near future, post-collapse story. And it's, you know, disguised as a kind of dystopian or apocalyptic tale, but in some ways it's really also a pastoral. It's set in a small town in Maine, and a lot of what is going on there is actually pretty mellow and not too disastrous. Uh, they're sort of uh, a chance to look at what a society would look like if the organic farmers were the top dogs. The main character is a total fish out of water there. He was a Hollywood screenwriter who was just in Maine visiting his sister when the um, technology all kind of crumbled and suddenly there were no airplanes or or cell phones or or you know Vimeo or or Netflix or uh, any of those things anymore and no guns and no tractors either it was just we were sort of returned to a kind of a almost uh, 18th century technological world and so you're stuck where you are and he's stuck in this small town in Maine where his sister is a, a local and he's a kind of a spare part and then one day to start the book the, the crisis that starts the book is um, the past comes rushing back into this town in the form of uh, one of his oldest and certainly his most problematic friends also his employer a movie producer named uh, Peter Toddbaum who is driving a nuclear-powered supercar it's like the last weapon the last vehicle the last uh, espresso maker on planet Earth, and it comes barreling into this town. It starts, you know, uh, reminding everyone of all the stuff that they kind of mercifully left behind. It's a book that's really a lot of it about being stuck where you are. So it was finished before this quarantine experience happened, but it has a weird echo or reverberation with what we've all been living through in the year uh, that the book was published. It's it's funny how you know. You can be so, if you think of a book in predictive terms, you can be so totally right and so totally wrong at the same time. There's something about the way the characters in the arrest are 
reduced to this sort of pure bodily occupation of their homes and their towns and they just so you know in one sense it really um, fits what we're all going through in another sense here we are on zoom you know the 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 pandemic has both placed us in our bodies and our homes and you know got us doing things like baking sourdough and farming in our backyards but at the same time it's thrust us totally into virtuality we're always constantly on zooms and everything is remote now and we're all living in virtual space so it's sort of like it's it's exactly right and exactly wrong at the same time so this what i'm going to read is just kind of a list when he first appears and he's found his old friend who's the narrator of the book so journeyman is listening to todd baum explain how he got here and what it was like because of course what's consumingly interesting is the possibility that todd baum has arrived with news of what's out there things todd baum told journeyman about the blue streak one, that yes, Todd Baum drove the thing, drove the thing from his home in Malibu, that he set out not quite a full year ago, ten months. Two, that before embarking, he'd survived the first three years of the arrest. That's what they call this uh, gentle catastrophe in the book, the arrest. That before embarking, he'd survived the first three years of the arrest without leaving Malibu. That he and several others had, for a time, employed a private security force and survived as a kind of armed compound. Three, that nevertheless, through that time, he'd had the car already prepared, secretly waiting. When every other fucking paranoid billionaire was sinking it all into private islands or safe houses, or private islands with safe houses, or underground Dr. Strangelove spider holes, I said to myself, why be a sitting duck? Who in God's name wants to sit around in meetings with people you didn't even like when they had money, deciding what to do the day the last sack of rice runs out. Four, that as he claimed to have predicted, the private mercenaries had in greed and desperation turned on the Malibu consortium, that only he, Todd Baum, had gotten out alive. Five, that the car could go almost 70 miles per hour on open highway, but that very little open highway was to be found between here and there anymore. That he'd had to go many times deep off-road across fenced prairie and open desert, and into forested mountain passes, all of which the car was equipped to traverse, but at minimal speeds. Six, that at other times he'd sequestered in a simpatico community for a period of days or even weeks in Boulder, Colorado, in Bloomington, Indiana, by a rural lake near Oberlin College in Ohio, and in these places shared the benefits of the car were those who, by dint of kindness, he felt deserved it, but that invariably he'd grow paranoid as plots began to encircle him, and so he'd hot-foot it out and be on his way. Seven, that he'd always, no matter the situation he'd discovered in his travels, and who boy, there were some stories, he'd always had Spottisall Ridge Farm and Maine in mind as his ultimate destination, that he'd known somehow that he'd find Journeyman and Madeline, that's Journeyman's sister, that he'd known he'd find Journeyman and Madeline intact there, quote, riding the arrest out in style. Eight, that the car was called the Blue Streak, that Todd Baum had named it after a car in a story that his father used to tell him serially at bedtime, that the bedtime story was obviously extemporaneous, i.e., in Todd Baum's phrase, quote, 
a bullshit shaggy dog thing where he didn't have a fucking clue about where it was going day to day. Nine, that the blue streak was powered by a self-contained nuclear reactor, that it was retrofitted into the exoskeletal structure of a machine that had earlier been used to bore tunnels under the ocean, that it never needed fuel and had not once needed repair. That it was impossible to shut it off once it had been fired up. That Todd Baum had been influential in the inception of the supercar project, suggesting it to its designer based on a favorite film of his childhood called Damnation Alley. That its designer had built only three such machines before being kidnapped and never heard from again. That it cost Todd Baum $14 million. That he didn't know who owned the other two. Ten. That when he situated the machine in what he judged as a safe place, he could trigger a drill that sought groundwater to replenish his reserves. That before disengagement for travel, it would be by the same method, it would by the same method bury his stored waste deep underground, so that like prey, it left no traceable spoor for anyone tracking. Journeyman didn't point out that it sounded as though this meant he went everywhere contaminating potable aquifers that others might rely on. The image of the blue streak planting its sucking tube where it landed made Journeyman see it briefly as a gigantic mosquito. 11, that his cockpit and sleeping cubicle were lead-lined like a dentist's x-ray offices to protect him from the risk of seeping radiation. 12, that the vacuum-sealed capsules of freeze-dried coffee stored deep in the blue streak's bowels actually had a gauge of their own on Todd Baum's dashboard, and it showed that at the current rate, he still had five months' worth of espresso. 13, that the portal through which he'd admitted journeyman was designed as a bladed trap if necessary. It could cinch closed and murder someone who'd been lured up inside. Had Todd Baum ever had to use it? No, he said, but I did crush a couple of jerks under the treads one night around Santa Fe. 14, that the blue streak had endured numerous attacks. Those scuffed and singed places journeyman had noted each marked some assault by medieval-style catapult, flaming arrow, or before the guns had quit working, an Uzi or Glock. Todd Baum indicated a place where a tracer bullet had lodged partway through the dual-layer safety glass of his windshield. 15. That the only other person he'd admitted into a safe space before journeyman just now was a woman he'd met in Pittsburgh who traveled with him as his companion as far as the outskirts of New York City, a locality into which Todd Baum had refused to enter. She was looking for someone in Manhattan. She continued on foot. He, needless to say, had no idea what had become of her, but it wasn't likely to be good. That was Jonathan Lethem reading from his novel, The Arrest. And now for the song written in response. I've been a fan of Tift Merritt for years, and I'm just thrilled to have her on Songwriter. A few months back, Jonathan, Tift, and I had a remote conversation about cross-influences in the arts, the song that Tift wrote for today's episode, and about parenting in the pandemic. We used to have rules about screen time. We don't anymore. <laughs> she loves, like, the worst YouTube things. And, and yesterday she got on, like, a, like a, like a, a Vietnamese series. <laughs> And I was like, Jean, it's not even in English. And she's like, what's so great about English? <laughs> <laughs> There's 
Here's my naked daughter. Jean, can you want to come say hey to my friends? One of the great questions that I find in this book, come in, Jean. <laughs> you need, okay. I have to wipe a fanny. I'll be right back. I mean, I think one of my favorite questions that this book asks is that, I mean, hasn't the breakdown already happened? I mean, haven't we, haven't we lost, aren't we already already lost and crazy and living in right. um, a situation that is wrong? And That's like better than 99% of the reviews that this book has gotten. You just totally <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> it's so perfect. Yeah. I'm always engaged with other forms, and I think form, creative forms have limitations, but the the essence, the, the the mission is the same. It's funny when I was young, I wanted to write big, thick novels, and um, but I found that short form uh, and really saying something in um, in a short story or in a handful of sentences that energy. Um, was was what I really was drawn to and could incorporate music into it. There's music in prose and there's prose in music and there's architecture in, in a chorus and a melody and um, the more that you can look around you and, and find ways that um, something that hasn't been said is being brought into to, into being and be in conversation with that. I mean, you certainly don't want to be doing this all by yourself, talking to no one. So it's very, it's 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 everything to find art and artists to to be on the quest with. I've been writing about um, the abandoned asylum in my hometown and how it's this. Slick. They're they're reconstituting it as a public park, and it's like I'm sorry. We all navigated everything around this hill where if we didn't behave, they'd send us there. And then I, you know, I started researching, and I found out that there was a segregated asylum that I didn't know about, and I started working there. And you know, the immediate question that I that I went to this asylum with is like. Who can, who, who is saying who's sane? I mean, you go to school and you get shot. We're all on our phone. Reality is dislocated. We, we've navigated the world saying that one color human is bad and one color human isn't. I mean, the head of this asylum here killed himself eventually. He was a very Trumpian character. He he ran for governor. He was on trial for sexual assault. He was a big fan of restraints. And he was awful. And and he was heralded as this great guy. And um, there's a university here that, that has his journals. And what his journals are, are every piece of press that was ever about him, whether it's good or bad, he pasted it in there. And one, and then I'm looking through them and then there's one page and it says orphan's friend at the top. And it's totally blank. Like how hard is it to be an orphan's friend? You got nothing to say? And so I wrote a song about how this page of this man's journal was a complete metaphor for 
like his own emptiness and society's emptiness and, and all of that. I really think um, our collective Jungian shadow created Donald Trump and we need to go to our fringes and listen and learn about who we are because it's really a reflection of who we are when we act this way. It's not a reflection of something being wrong with someone else. This is Tift Merritt with her song, Asylum in a Mad, Mad World. In the town where I grew up, there's a haunted spot where they send everybody they did not want. Out on the outskirts, so nobody sees the shame. The broken and the bad, bad seeds. It never did make sense to me to be so cruel and so mean. But you know, you can go crazy without trying very hard. Looking for the sound in a mad, mad world. Kids would spook themselves just running to the gate. Did you hear the orphans crying? Mistake that I probably belong up 
song, Asylum in a Mad, Mad World. The final episode of Season 3 of Songwriter will feature a poem by legendary author Joyce Carol Oates and a song written in response by international pop star Katie Melua. Please subscribe so you don't miss it, and while you're at it, why not give us a rating and a review? If you want to support Songwriter and our artists, you can get a premium subscription via Apple Podcasts. Songwriter is produced by me, Ben Arthur, and you can always get early access to the Songwriter podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.